Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There is a push-pull dynamic when it comes to emerging markets. On the one hand, you have an increasingly dovish Federal Reserve, potentially weaker dollar. On the flip side, you have trade wars that arguably may end up slowing certain economies, particularly those tied to China more than developed markets. Here to sort of parse through where the opportunities are here is Eric Fine, Portfolio Manager, focused on emerging, emerging markets, fixed income at Van Eck Global. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. So where are we in terms of this dynamic? Is the sort of bull case for EM stronger right now or uh, or the bear case? Um, well, I as a you know, 25 plus year EM person um, for 25 years, I've been asked, what do I think about emerging markets bonds? And for 25 years, I've said, I don't know. And I feel more and more comfortable. I think it depends country by country. However, that wasn't your question. Your question was broadly speaking. And so my answer would be, if quote unquote emerging markets to you means um, um, a lot of exposure uh, uh, to uh, names like Mexico or Turkey, um, or it means significant exposure to quote unquote EMFX, then, you know, then um, I would be more cautious. Um, right now, the countries we are concerned about happen to be big ones. Um, Mexico in particular, Turkey ongoing. Russia is tricky because it's the fundamentals are fine. It's more about sanctions risk. Um, um, so uh, uh, I think you could uh, I think you could make a mixed case. Um, and uh, uh, so I would say, but I would I would say the biggest concerns we have are that uh, countries like Turkey, there's too much trapped exposure, essentially. Uh, countries like uh, Mexico, there's too much comfort with its ratings, and we think it's a derating story. South Africa is mixed. Um, wait, 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 yeah, wait. You're saying that Mexico you think is going to default? No, derating. Derating. Oh, so derating. Okay. Derating. Oh, no, no, no. no. Default. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no. Derating. Um, um, I, I would say that there's there's a non-trivial chance in, in, in a country like Turkey that's in the midst of a balance payments crisis right now. Um, but no, Mexico's derating. So um, if, you, if you're going to be mar very married to the existing um, um, amount of debt that's out there, essentially, um, then, um, um, then I'd be cautious. And I'd be biased towards dollars, um, towards dollar-denominated debt. Because the more um, profound thing that's happened is that the Fed has gotten activated. That seems to me the big wheel turning. Um, and, uh, and it gets to what you think happens. Let's say, let's say that the Fed's reaction is discounting um, a slowdown in the economy. Well, most people with my experience that believe in the so-called dollar smile, which is um, um, in, in, uh, uh, in extreme good times and extreme bad times, the dollar can do, does really well. And, um, uh, and, and in a recession, you've had through all this dollar debt issuance, essentially a big short in the dollar. If we're going to a recession, the traditional behavior is what we've seen, uh, let's say, out of Turkey when, they when they're worried about access to finance or a downturn. They buy dollars, right? And then if the policy reaction is bad, they, the, 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 the authorities uh, uh, step in and try to m muck around with that. So, Eric, is there an argument to be, to be made that investors should avoid or underweight emerging markets broadly until the China situation is resolved. There's just too much, uh, you know, tape risk. Absolutely not. That's my, my, one of my strongest opinions is, in general, people are way too worried about emerging markets. Um, as uh, 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 you get paid, let's just look at corp EM corporates. You get paid a higher spread for the same rating as a U.S. corporate. And that EM corporate has to work harder 
to get that same rating. So you're basically, you're in a sense getting net, lower leverage, lower, you know, net debt to EBITDA, those, those sorts of variables. Um, uh, typical U.S. pension funds have about 3% allocated to EM debt. If you look at the boring old efficient frontier, and I'm not a fan of looking backwards, but last 14 years, and you look at the different elements of fixed income, you're supposed to have, depending on your risk tolerance, 25 to 40% of your bonds in EM debt. And we're living in a post-QE era where the storytelling works with it. What are we talking about these days, last 10, 15 years? Sustainable level of debt, independent central banking, getting paid for political risk. Those are all three, those are three things that EM has an answer for. So broadly speaking, I think this is, EM is, continues to acquit itself. My, my concern is that as we go through a trickier period, the names that are vulnerable happen to be names that are household names, big names. In our portfolio, we, you know, what we do is we avoid them. Um, but uh, one of the big phenomena, the other phenomena that's happened over the last 10 years is that there has been uh, increasing um, exposure to names because they're part of an index, not because I- investors are choosing to, to, to invest. And so I worry about, oh, I don't like it, therefore I'm underweight behavior, as opposed to I don't like it and I don't own it. Yeah. behavior. Well, so I'm wondering, what, where do you find uh, value? You said dollar-denominated bonds of which nations? Uh, I'd say some great uh, uh, names out there are Brazil um, and Ukraine. Um, Brazil's a big name, so that's why I mentioned it. it's a, b- a big, important one. Um, Brazil uh, has essentially one core problem. It's fiscal, in particular pension reform. Other than that, it's in okay shape. Reserves are high, well, certainly relative to imports. Um, the economy is coming out of one of the deepest recessions in about 100 years. They're going through a number of, they're implementing a number of structural reforms. If pen, and the central bank is independent, inflation and inflation expectations are low and anchored. If the economy grows, there's plenty of capacity, so you won't see it pass through to inflation immediately, or, it, you know, and if structural reforms hold. So I think that's a very, very positive story. Um, assuming they get pension reform through, which is, you know, a daily, weekly soap opera, um, but that is one of the great stories there. I think Petbra is is a good way to uh, um, um, get exposure, but there are plenty of good corporates. I'd also say Ukraine, north of 600 overspreads, um, was on an IMF right. program, is likely to re-enter an IMF program, very popular. Um, it does have some issues, mainly short-term debt liabilities, but right. most of them are to the U.S. and can be handled through sponsorship from, you know, or, or, okay. or association with the IMF. Eric, fine. Thank you so much. Uh, tour de force through uh, emerging markets uh, investing. I guess the takeaway is don't be scared away from emerging markets, given the trade tensions. Eric Fine, Portfolio Manager for Emerging Markets Fixed Income Strategy at Van Eck Global, uh, joining us uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Let us turn our sights to the one and only Mark Benioff, who has been a force unto himself when it has come to consolidation. Salesforce.com uh, now buying Tableau, a software company, uh, for $15.3 billion in an all-stock deal. Sales, uh, Salesforce shares are down today more than 4%. Tableau shares, however, uh, surging more than 30%. Luckily, we have Anurag Rana, software and IT services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, here with us in our interactive broker studios to help us understand why markets are perceiving this as a good deal currently uh, for uh, for uh, Tableau and perhaps not so much for Salesforce. Well, it's an all stock deal, so you would expect uh, Salesforce to go down a little bit. But, you know, frankly, uh, Salesforce has done such a good job about acquiring companies over the past few years, adding it to the portfolio of already present companies it has, 
they bought a company called MuleSoft last year, and this particular deal actually, you know, really complements the business of those guys. All right, so why is Salesforce doing this deal? This is a pretty big trade for them. Why are they doing this deal? So one of the biggest themes in enterprise software today is, you know, artificial intelligence, getting more analytics out of your existing customer base, getting more insights. So for that, you really need to, you know, pull out data that you have internally on your, you know, systems, as well as marry it to social media, other kind of data systems. But then at the end of the day, after you gain insights of it, you need to visualize those particular in dashboards and beautiful graphs. And this is what Tableau does better than anybody else out there. Can you just zoom out a little bit and just give us a sense of how much this deal is just yet confirmation of Mark Benioff's strategy and frankly, his his sort of instinct and trusting his internal instinct to just go with a deal when he sees it and, and moving quickly. Moves very quickly, definitely. And, you know, we have seen over the years, whether it was Demandware um, or uh, Force.com, which is part of their uh, platform as a service at that time. I mean, all of these things eventually adds very well to their existing core customer base, which is, you know, the people who buy their sales cloud or their customer service cloud. All of this, you know, ties very well into that. So it is, you know, as you said, it is something that Mark Benioff does better than, you know, almost everybody out there at this point. Boy, I'm looking at the uh, Salesforce uh, stock price chart five years on the Bloomberg terminal here. That is a good story. I mean, wow. So he, the market clear, he's obviously earned uh, the market's uh, support. Um, but the stock is down today. You know, I think this is going to be dilutive to earnings uh, initially. I mean, did he overpay here potentially? It's so it is expensive. 16 times sales is probably one of the largest, I mean, I would say higher valuations that we have come across. But again, he's paying with stock. So they, you know, take that into account as well. It's not cash. Um, and, you know, I think SAP bought a company called Qualtrics just uh, a few months ago. They actually paid more than this. So current valuation in software is so high that if you really need to get some deal done, you need to take out, uh, you know, cash and at a much higher multiple. So right now, who does this hurt the most in terms of Salesforce.com's competitors? They are trying to be as aggressive so that Microsoft doesn't, you know, really become bigger in this space. So that's one. Second, I think Oracle needs to step up their game a little bit because their stock has not done as well as uh, Salesforce has over the last three to five years. And they may not have that much currency to use their stock to buy that. So, they, you know, they've been buying back stock aggressively. They really need to think back and say, do I need to get more cloud deals uh, to 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 grow over the next few years or not? All right. So my favorite question when we talk about deals is this going to set off more deal flow so my banker friends can get paid? It, it has been for a while. Software deals has been so hot. It's just, uh, I mean, I, I I won't be surprised over the next few months if you see more uh, deals in the space. So what what in so in the software space is this is it all about the cloud here? I mean, I guess we saw Google just uh, last week with a, a two and a half billion dollar acquisition. Is is cloud still the area where these tech companies are uh, you know investing money, making deals, putting capital to work? Cloud is one. Customer insights is another one. So Google, you know, buying Looker is the same exact thing as as Salesforce buying Tableau in terms of visualization of that data. So you are trying to figure out. A lot of these enterprises, legacy enterprises, companies like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, they have so much of data on their own systems, they really need to extract it, get value out of it, and then go back to that same customer and sell more products to them. And that's where a lot of these things are coming through is you know, your ability to extract that data, clean it up, ingest, then analyze it, and then finally show social uh, you know, uh, dashboards along with it. Anurag Rana, thank you so much. Uh, Anurag Rana is a senior analyst for software and IT services for Bloomberg Intelligence here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. 
Well, trade tensions appear to be abating somewhat today on news of the Mexico deal. Of course, China is still to be determined, but looking at the action today, markets certainly liking the reduced tensions with Mexico. To get a sense of where to go next, we welcome Brad McMillan. Brad is Chief Investment Officer of Commonwealth Financial Network, with about $161 billion under management. He joins us on the phone from Waltham, Mass. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Do you think that this storm is passing financial markets as we speak? I do, Paul, and I'll tell you why. There's been a tremendous amount of bad news. There have been some real shocks, certainly the Mexico tariff adjustment, you know, certainly qualifies as a shock. But nonetheless, markets have been resilient and they bounced back strongly. I think there's a lot of strength there. Okay, so at this point, given the fact that we didn't see that much of a pullback, the specter of not getting a China-U.S. trade deal, where are the opportunities? I think the opportunities are in growth sectors. I would probably stay away from internationally exposed equities. You know, certainly there's still risk there. When you look at the United States, there's a lot of fear about consumer spending. There's a lot of fear about how fast the economy is going to grow. In fact, we're seeing wage growth holding steady at over 3%. We're seeing job growth, despite the last, despite the disappointing number the other day, you know, hold at strong levels, and we're seeing confidence high. I think the consumer has been oversold. So, Brad, one of the areas that is uh, tends to lead the market both up and down, as we saw in the fourth quarter, is big tech. And I think maybe what's changed a little bit in the analysis of some of the big technology stocks that have driven the market has been maybe there's a new regulatory risk factor that needs to be weighed in for these names as U.S. regulators start taking a look at big tech. How do you factor that in? I think right now the assumption has been that growth is infinite, no one will ever touch them. But remember, tech has weathered this before. We went through a phase where there was no taxes on the Internet, and if we imposed taxes, it was going to destroy everything, and of course it didn't. Tech has a wonderful ability to kind of negotiate around government restrictions. Microsoft's another good example. It was going to be broken up. It was going to be taken down. Now it's worth over a trillion dollars. Companies can respond to these things. I think it's a real concern, but you have to factor in companies' ability to stay ahead of the regulators, which thus far they've got a good record. So, Brett, I'm struck by the optimistic tone that you're taking in this idea that growth stocks still have more room to run, the consumer's been oversold, and pairing that with the idea that traders are currently pricing in two and a half rate cuts by the end of this year, basically indicating a slowing in the economy and a capitulation by the Federal Reserve that their policies are just too tight at this point. How do you reconcile uh, these two sort of features of the market right now? Well, first of all, they call me Eeyore here at the office, so I'm not a natural optimist, okay? But when you look at what's going on, when you look at, we've never had a recession with job growth as strong as it is. We've never had a recession with consumer confidence where it is. Ditto business confidence, and even the yield curve, yes, it's recently inverted, but typically that gives us at least 12 months. So we've got at least a couple of quarters ahead of us, and I think right now all of the bad news has kind of pushed expectations down unduly. Yes, there's a storm coming, but I don't think it's showing up anytime soon. And I think the Fed actually gets that. They're being cautious. They're being responsible. But I don't see anybody pushing the panic button just yet. So, Brad, I think um, if we, if I were just to summarize kind of the guests that we've heard, the people on this show over the last several weeks, in terms of uh, gauging a recession call, it seems to be that most people are thinking about something uh, in timing mid-2020. Is that something that is consistent with your thinking? 
I think that's the best bet right now. We've seen the yield curve invert. If that takes us out um, 12 months, that would be right in the middle of the sweet spot. If we see consumer confidence decay, that would also put us in the same spot. And there are other things that say that's the place. So the real question is not are we going to have a recession. We are at some point but will it be in 2020? And I think that's reasonable. Okay, so we're speaking with Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, uh, overseeing $161 billion. You talk with a lot of advisors, Brad, a lot of investors, and I'm just wondering, you know, if you tell them this, what happens if they say to you, okay, there might be a couple quarters left, when do I get out ahead of a, a recession? Sort of when is the sort of escape hatch open? Well, one of the good ways to look at it is, and I actually wrote a book about this, is it can make sense to de-risk when the market moves into moves below its 200-day moving average. That historically has indicated a time to worry. And in fact, right now, we were just below the 200-day moving average. So you could argue you should be worried. But when you look at the other fundamentals, we don't see sustained pullbacks without a recession. So I'm going to look at a recession. I'm going to see where consumer confidence is. I'm going to be mostly looking at a recession. So, Brad, one of the things you know that's been powering, obviously, powers the U.S. economy and is um, is the consumer. And we've seen generally a very strong consumer. Uh, we did have that surprisingly weak jobs data on Friday. What is your view of the consumer? I think the consumer still feels good. I think the what's interesting when you look at that weak jobs report. First of all, we've had weak jobs reports before, and they've rebounded. We seem to be in 2019 at a lower level of growth, given that we've had two weak reports, but it's still a healthy level on average. Second of all, you've seen wage growth hold up. There was some talk about how wage growth pulled back, but in fact, for the average working person, the production workers, wage growth has held up much better. So for most people, their spending ability is being enhanced because they're making more money. There's more people working. And in fact, with lower interest rates, they're going to be more able to buy things like cars and houses. That can only be helpful. So in the meantime, we do have this trade battle that seems to be raging in the background. Uh, the U.S. and China seem to be hardening their lines uh, depending on the day. And I'm just wondering how you factor this into your assessment. Well, there are two things going on here. First is the direct damage. And even there, when you look at it, it's about $30 billion right now on a $20 trillion economy. It's meaningful, but it's certainly not going to break the bank. The indirect effects are going to be the most meaningful. And there you're starting to see reduced confidence. We'll start to see more impact on consumers' pocketbooks over the next couple of months if tariffs go up. So it's a headwind. But it's a headwind that's only going to rise slowly, and it's, it's not going to be an earthquake. It's going to be a slow, slow slope to slow the economy down a little bit. So, Brad, let's take, if we get a bad headline, I mean, a bad headline out of China, because I think the expectations are, oh, some deal will get done. But if we get some bad news out of China, what do you think the risk to the, the market is? I honestly don't think China drives much of the market. When you get Chinese headlines, you go back and you compare the um, you compare how the U.S. market does. We're still a very closed economy, relatively speaking. Only about an eighth of our economy is exposed outside the U.S. Now, there's more exposure to earnings, corporate earnings, but at the same time, much of that damage has already been done. And you've seen diminishing effects as we get more and more headlines. So right now... I think the market's expectations are pretty low. I think there's more chance to beat it than underwhelm it. Just real quick, indexes or stock selection, what's your uh, preference right now? 
Right now, I think it's still about indexes. You have individual stocks. Um, There's certainly some opportunities out there, but for the average investor, the index remains the way to go. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, uh, overseeing $161 billion. Well, I've been told that uh, this Sunday is Father's Day. So in case anyone out there is thinking about a gift, um, I have enough, um, I don't know, socks, ties. I've, I think I've Paul, got all that kind of stuff. So what do you want? I'm just saying, well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I think our next guest will have some cool ideas. Joseph Abood, uh, Chief Creative Director for Men's Warehouse. Uh, he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Joseph, thanks so much for joining us. It's really great to have you here. So first of all, we were just talking off air uh, you know, the question I had is, are millennials, are younger generations, are they dressing up? Yeah, that's the most encouraging news, as we were just talking about, to see the young guy getting dressed up again. Maybe his dad lived through that casual experience, and so now he's finding his own space, and he's doing custom suits, and it's a very big part of our business. So the suit isn't dead, it's just morphed. They're wearing it differently. Maybe the trousers are a little shorter, the silhouettes are a little leaner. But guys are getting dressed, so that's uh, that's really terrific. So what's the age group? Because I remember <laughs> back in the, say, six months ago when we were talking about yoga wear coming back yes. and wondering how gym wear was going to sort of infiltrate yes. the male species. And I'm yes. just wondering, you know, uh, is that is that over? Because Lululemon seems to be doing just fine. Well, they're doing great. I think that's a lifestyle thing, but I think that's just one piece of a guy's wardrobe. Every guy is going to find a moment when he needs to get dressed up younger or more established. And so that young guy who's graduating college and looking to set himself for his future is looking, I need two or three suits for a wedding, a funeral, a job interview. So it's just that they're doing it their own way. And it's very difficult to buy suits online. You really need to go in and touch, feel, and get fitted. So uh, having uh, retail locations is crucial to get the guy to understand how his suits, and every body type is different. Let's be sure about that. So just, it is Father's Day. So what what would you suggest would be like a really good, thoughtful, cool, fun gift? Yeah. I mean, there are all different. How about a suit? I, well, <laughs> here's the thing. What a great, and we found this, that guys are getting custom suits as gifts, the experience. It's not actually yep. purchased, yep. but it's a great gift. But if you want something more affordable, linen is a great fabric for spring, summer. So the linen shirt is always a great piece. The white linen shirt, it's fresh. Anything that's more personal to the dad. Maybe some dads are more dressed up. Some dads are a little more casual. So it really depends on on the direction you want to take. Where in the United States are you actually seeing younger people dressing up more? Yeah, I think if you look at the cities. I mean, obviously, just looking at the building that we're in today, seeing all the young guys. There are a lot of guys in shirts and trousers, but there are a lot of guys in jackets and trousers, some with ties, some without but we find that throughout Including the Including the, the dashing man next to me. Oh, of course. And it's <laughs> great course. to see him in dressed in his shirt and tie. Yep. But you know, there is something wonderful about when a guy gets dressed, he feels different. I always say a guy feels like James Bond. You know, you put on a great suit or a great tuxedo. There's something really special about that. It's now guys are wearing suits because they want to, not because they have to. And that's the distinction. It's not a uniform anymore. Joseph, I think one of the great things about your brand and your company over the years at Joseph Abood brand and line of clothing is it's actually manufactured here in the United States. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I think of all of the things of all my accomplishments, our factory 
in New Bedford, Massachusetts, we have 800 people there. And we produce about 300,000 high-quality tailored garments a year using Xenia fabric, Lorapiana fabric, all the high-end Italian fabric. So, uh, and it's grown. The first season I launched in 1987, we made 2,000 suits there. And now we're up to about 340,000 units. So it's, it's, it's a great place. Uh, I think most people don't know that. But it's not just about being made in America, it's being made well in America. That's important. So you're part of Tailored Brands, yes. and I know that they did just appoint a new chief executive officer yes. within the past few months, yes. uh, Dinesh Lothi, and yes. his background is more in the casual wear. And I'm wondering yes. how that sort of meshed with your understanding of kind of the future. How is that kind right. of going forward? Well, I think Dinesh is, uh, is a highly intelligent, energized CEO. We love having him. I think he's learned about what we do in tailoring. He can fit a suit now. So he, he really immerses himself in the experience. And when we talk about casual and dressy, I think there's a myth to some degree. As a woman, you probably know that women have one wardrobe. Men have two wardrobes. They haven't learned to integrate their wardrobes. And so when we talk about casual, you can put a casual piece in with a suit. So we're trying to teach men about lifestyle dressing, and that does include suits, dressy clothing, but it also includes sportswear. So I don't think there's a one way or another to dress. I think it should be all available to men. So, Joseph, you mentioned earlier online shopping and how that's, you know, there's yeah. challenges there, certainly in, in fine uh, clothing. Uh, you talked about the importance of actually touching it and feeling it. Uh, you guys have a new store you opened recently, yeah. right, You're for your collection. Yes, it's our, it's our flagship store, our black label collection on 49th and Madison. And what I really wanted to do is bring back the experience of the great specialty store. Great product, one-of-a-kind pieces service, style, and information. And that's always been my goal, is to be able to help men, because so often you walk into a store, you can't get the proper help, you can't get the right fit. So service is a huge part of the experience for guys. I love that when it comes to the experience for women, people talk about manicures and and, uh, and getting <laughs> your hair done and blowouts, but with, a, with respect to a male store, it's just simply the service. Is there anything else, any other high-touch elements of, of being served in a store. Yeah, you know, the, the whole experience for guys, you know, lifestyle for guys, we talk about the barbershop, we talk about the bar, those things that are important. But really for guys, and it's interesting how men shop, they're, they're, they're laser-focused. They want to know about the fabric, they want to know about the fit, and it's so important to give them that information. You know, here's a fabric that is from Italy or from the UK. And also what you want to do is make sure that you can tell them about the experience and have them enjoy it. Make it a process for the guy and his wife or girlfriend or mom or whatever. Joseph Abood, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you guys for having me again. Joseph Abood, designer and chief creative director of Men's Warehouse. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.